So over time, as the baby gets in that second six months, they're nursing a lot and they're eating whatever the family is eating, which they've already been tasting the whole time in the mother's milk. But most of the time, whatever the mother eats, if it's healthy for her, it's healthy for the baby. Hello, I'm Carolyn, and this is What Doulas Know. I'm a doula, the mother of two, and for over 40 years, a registered nurse. My goal is to educate, support, and empower before, during, and after pregnancy with a special emphasis on labor and childbirth. All information presented in this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical diagnosis or treatment. The persons presenting the episodes are not licensed doctors. You should consult a qualified medical professional before making any decisions regarding your health, including any decisions based on information presented here. Hello, it's Carolyn with an episode of What Doulas Know, talking about breastfeeding with Linda Smith. As we heard from other episodes, she's an internationally known expert on lactation and breastfeeding, uh, and her impressive bio will be on the whatdoulasknow.com website so you can read all about her. So join me today as we discuss the science of breastfeeding and human lactation. We'll listen as we talk about what makes wondrous, magical mother's milk, uh, the journey from placenta to pizza, what readiness to eat means to the baby, the life cycle of the breastfeeding mother-baby dyad, and more. And we're going to end by debunking some of the breastfeeding myths. So, Linda, what what does make mother's wondrous magical milk? The most important factor is removing milk from the lactating breast. The more you take out, the more comes in, period. It doesn't matter what the mother eats, drinks, thinks about, wears on her body, it just doesn't matter if she's not removing milk frequently and thoroughly by any means, preferably the baby. I mean, most mothers love to have the baby at breast once, if they have problems in the beginning, we can fix that. It's not supposed to hurt. It's supposed to be wonderful. It's supposed to be as comfortable as a kiss. And it usually is. The first time you kiss, it's a little weird. Yeah. Okay. So we'll, we'll, we can help. We, I'm talking we being, all the lactation care providers out there, whether it's a peer or whether it's a mother-to-mother person, a lactation leader, a lactation consultant, a nurse who knows her stuff, a, a midwife who knows his stuff. Almost anybody can help, but the idea is the milk has to be removed from the breast. If you leave milk in the breast, it goes away. Okay, so it doesn't matter what you eat. Is you that what you're saying? You can live on Pop-Tarts and Mountain Dew and make great milk. There's a myth that you have to eat lactation cookies or blue Gatorade or oatmeal or name any one of a thousand other foods that simply don't matter. If you look in people who live in hot tropical countries are going to have a very different diet than people who live north of the Arctic Circle that live on whale meat. It doesn't matter as long as they're removing milk frequently. Okay. So what is the journey from placenta to pizza And the readiness to eat, what does that mean? So the baby gets all of its nutrients through the umbilical cord and in the amniotic fluid. So the baby actually gets uh, nutrition through the cord from the mother's blood. And also they drink and swallow and actually breathe in a little amniotic fluid before they're born. Once they're born, the baby now feeds intermittently. So the mother brings the baby to breast many times a day and night. Baby has to be there in the restaurant a lot. And the baby has to actually be able to get milk out of the breast comfortably, and the mother has to be comfortable. And then it helps if she's got some sort of support system. 
So as the baby gets older, the milk changes. So in the beginning, if you think about um, cottage cheese, it's whey and casein. Casein are the curds. Whey is the liquidy part of cottage cheese. In the beginning, human milk is 90% whey. So it looks kind of watery. It looks kind of bluish. It is full of water-soluble factors that are important for immune protection. It doesn't have a lot of the casein because newborns don't need to stand up. Casein is where the calcium lives, which makes it look chalky and cloudy. So over time, that changes. So in the beginning, you can see it in the baby's poop. Um, a baby who is under six weeks old is pooping every single day. Lots of yellow skids, looks kind of like yellow uh, yogurt. And then as time, that those stools get a little bit firmer. They come a little bit less often. So by six weeks, the ratio is a little bit different. By four months, four- and five-month-olds can somehow save up their poop for a couple of days and give it to you all day on Friday when you thought you were going to go shopping. <laughs> That's because there's more casein in the milk compared to whey because the immune system is more robust and the baby's getting closer to being able to scoot around the floor and pick up the rug fuzz and the whatever's on the floor. You get over six months and the baby has got gut closure, which means the baby can now pick up a hamburger that you're eating and digest it and eat it, chomp it to death with, they might even have some teeth by then. By the way, Teeth don't bother a breastfeeding baby because to nurse properly, the tongue has to be over the teeth. And most mothers figure out when the baby tries to pull back and bite how not to let that happen. Usually takes once or twice. So over time, as the baby gets in that second six months, they're nursing a lot and they're eating whatever the family is eating, which they've already been tasting the whole time that they were gestating and the whole time in the mother's milk. So the mother who eats a lot of garlic, the milk is going to be flavored with garlic. Or if you eat a lot of kimchi, the milk is going to be flavored with kimchi. And that's a good thing because then the baby tastes whatever the mother was eating that day or the day before. So the baby's eating, tasting the pizza from Monday and the barbecue from Tuesday and the sushi from Wednesday and the fish sandwich from Friday or or whatever. And that's a good thing. But we don't have to think real hard about taking a supplement to get this into the baby or anything. Yeah. Our body does what it needs to do. If it's healthy for mom, it's healthy for the baby. Now, mothers that live on weird diets sometimes need a little extra foods. Um, the one we worry about the most is mothers who are vegan because B12 is one of the B vitamins that's found most robustly in animal products. She really does need a B12 supplement because that affects nerve function of the baby. But most of the time, whatever the mother eats, if it's healthy for her, it's healthy for the baby. And what, do, she, what she drinks doesn't matter either. So she can have wine or beer? She can have wine or beer. Now, if she's fallen down drunk, she shouldn't be holding the baby. Right. Um, and actually, that matters at night because one thing we begin to talk about is what do you do at night? Babies nurse at night till at least six to nine months because they can't go that long without food because their liver isn't mature enough. So they need to eat every couple of hours. And a lot of breastfeeding mothers sleep with their babies, at least 75%. We wanted to do it safely because we want everybody alive in the morning. So a breastfeeding mother sleeping with her baby who is sober, a non-smoker, on a safe surface has no published risk. But if you get away from breastfeeding or sobriety or an unsafe surface or a couch, those are all dangerous situations. So around nine-ish months, 
the baby has figured out. That's the end of the external gestation, according to some research. So you have nine months inside, you get nine months outside to get the baby to the same stage of development, nine to 12 months, that a lot of other mammals are at birth. So the 9 to 12-month-old is getting a little shy, freaks out if mom goes to the bathroom alone because they know who mom is and accept no substitutes. You get toward a year, they're eating everything else, everybody else in the family is eating. They're still nursing, and they're still getting trace minerals. They're still getting hormones. They're still getting protective factors. The babies can't get any other way till around age three. So the recommendations worldwide are exclusive breastfeeding for six months, breastfeeding with family foods for starting at six-ish months up to two or more years. And some babies quit before then. Some mothers are sick of it before then. And we help both of them if that's their choice. But ideally, the baby nurses and weans sometime well after two. Now, the two-year-old might nurse at night for five minutes going to bed. It's not like a newborn. Right. I think that's one of the myths. People visualize a toddler going to preschool stuck to their mother's breast yeah. and that and that is not it at all. It's they go after they go after preschool and then come home and nurse. Yeah. <laughs> we we joke that that's why they have half day kindergarten. <laughs> but most kids have weaned themselves somewhere after two and a half. Worldwide the weaning age is somewhere between two and a half and seven. Wow. In the research, right? Yeah. So when when you see a three-year-old, you can't assume they're not still nursing. <laughs> yeah. Linda, in your book, you talk about the life cycle of the breastfeeding mother baby dyad. Can you go a little bit about that? The life cycle hinges on the relationship between the mother and the baby. And all mothers are responsive to babies, or should be, and dads too. The mother's body reacts differently even when she's sound asleep. Her milk will let down when it's time for the baby to eat, even if the baby is somewhere else. That relationship is different for the breastfeeding mother, and it teaches her beyond a shadow of a doubt to respond to her baby's needs for her, willingly open arms, yeah, sometimes resentfully because you were in the middle of doing something, this kid needs a nurse again. That's the nature of having kids. But that reciprocity of responding to your kids' needs, figuring out why they're having a meltdown in the grocery store, maybe it's because you were dumb enough to take them shopping at 4.30 in the afternoon when they didn't have a snack. So a lot of it is responsiveness to this baby's needs, not doing harmful things, doing being protective. Um, we know that eight-month-olds try to stick forks in electric light sockets. So we make sure that the eight-month-old doesn't have the fork or the screwdriver, and we put guards over the sockets. So it's a responsiveness that carries through way after breastfeeding ends. And I'll give you an example with my oldest son. When he was a senior in high school, one night he needed to talk. So by then, I'd lived with this kid 17 years. I realized, oh, He's not my cuddly kid, but he needs to talk. So you drop what you're doing. You sit and talk to the kid till the wee hours, and you listen and you feedback. Oh, gosh, that must have been hard. That I bet you didn't expect that. And you're there with them. And that's not about breastfeeding, but it is about breastfeeding because the bodily reaction of the mother's breast letting down, letting their milk down when the baby cries or in the clothing store when the baby should have been eating, that spills over into how you relate with your children and the rest of their lives. So that's what I mean about the life cycle. 
Mm-hmm. It teaches a different style of parenting. Um, the dads who grow up in a breastfeeding family, uh, spouses of the mother or whatever their relation is, tend to do the same thing. They tend to give a quality of fathering that is responsive, and yet dads bring things to the baby that the mom isn't. Breastfeeding isn't the only way to be responsive to the baby. It's a way that the mother's body tells her, hits her smack upside the head and says, your baby needs you, your milk is letting down, dummy. So it's a bodily reaction as well as a cognitive and deliberate behavioral interaction. For somebody who isn't breastfeeding, you learn it. And that's good parenting. It's in lots and lots and lots of books. It's easier to learn that when your body's your your breasts are leaking and it's time to nurse. Right. When I when I hear you talk about this, I think, well, gosh, Carolyn, you weren't breastfed, so are you a mess? <laughs> yeah. And Actually, I wasn't breastfed either. And I can sit down now that I know the research and list the the conditions that I'm dealing with as an old lady that were partly due to the fact that my mother tried and didn't have any knowledge or help and they did really inappropriate things to and with mothers back when I was a baby. Yeah. Yep. They just said you can't do it or your nipples are matter. inverted or something, something, something. And right. in your book, you talk about how in the past, the nursery had given them a little feeding of sugar water to – Or formula. Or formula to because the mother needed rest and, and when we weren't having the rooming in that we do now. And so they were – in a way, sabotaging the success of breast milk by giving the baby something else. Well, they still do that. Um, in the past, they not only did that, but they claimed that babies didn't need anything to eat for over 24 hours, which is not true. They took the babies away from mothers for no good reason. And I, I've talked before on some of these other episodes about the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative. It helps a birthing facility put into place evidence-based practices to stop some of the bad things that were done to women in the past. So, Linda, we need to talk about some of the breastfeeding myths. And um, one of them that we talked about a little bit was being able to drink um, a glass of wine or a beer and go out with your friends. And then when I was uh, nursing, if I was brave enough to have a glass of wine, I would come home and do the pump and dump thing because I was afraid that um, my daughter was going to get drunk. So tell me about that. So most drugs are compatible. That word is chosen carefully with breastfeeding. Alcohol in particular um, goes up in your blood when you have a drink, and then it goes up in your milk, and it goes down again. So as you sober up, your milk basically sobers up. You don't need to pump and dump. However, if you're away from the baby too long, then your breasts are engorged. And I mean, that hurts. So, um, but Levels of alcohol use of a drink now and then have been done throughout history, and that's not considered a, any kind of a contraindication. We worry a little bit about marijuana and THC because there's not enough research on it, and it's an unusual drug in that it tends to accumulate in milk. Now, drugs in milk, most of them are compatible. There's a lot of research on that in websites. We worry about the baby's brain. So any drug that affects the mother's brain – might affect the baby's brain. So we tend to be the most cautious. Babies are also fast-growing. So anything that would affect fast-growing tissue in the mother, like a cancer, we worry a lot about the chemotherapy drugs because those can have an effect on the baby that is 
permanent and profound. But in general, most drugs are compatible with breastfeeding. We don't want moms getting drunk or stoned and dropping the baby, of course. And if you're drunk, you shouldn't be sleeping with a baby. But that's whether or not you're breastfeeding. So most of those drugs are fine. Most of the foods you eat are fine. Some foods will make the baby make you fart. Mm -hmm. Okay, I like sauerkraut. Makes me fart. (laughs) Makes my babies fart. So what? That's that's life. Yeah, that's life. (laughs) Right. What other myths are there that you can think of? You got to be tied down all the time. In fact, when I was pregnant and saw the films of how to make formula, I thought, oh my God, I'm going to get tied to the kitchen the rest of my life because I don't particularly like to cook. The thing about a breastfed baby, particularly in the first six months, you don't need anything other than maybe a sling to carry him and a couple of diapers and you're gone. Camping, hiking, going around the world, sitting on an airplane. A breastfed baby is so easy to take with you. Now, babies aren't easy to take with you, but a breastfed baby is way easier because you've got the food with you. Right. When we work with emergency responders for disasters, they always have food for the people who were victimized by the hurricane or tornado or whatever. We've tried to work with all the emergency services to realize what the baby needs is the mother because she's got milk in her. You don't need to buy extra food for the baby. Um, in the Philippines, when there was a great big tsunami and floods, the local breastfeeding organization helped the mothers who had young babies bring their milk back in because they, if it had been weaned recently, the same thing happened in Haiti. Mm-hmm. They helped mothers relactate yeah, and mothers nursed other mothers' babies when there was nothing else available until they could find some other source of food. Yeah, that's awesome. Are there any other myths? Powdered formula is not sterile. It is the unsafest form of all the formulas. Wow. If you're going to formula feed, the liquid ready to feed is the is the least risky, followed by the stuff diluted with water, but you have to dilute it. And I had a, a male PhD who didn't dilute it for four days, which is really dangerous. Uh, the powdered formula cannot be made sterile. And it's particularly, some of it is contaminated with some pretty bad bacteria that create meningitis. So the more vulnerable the baby the more risky powdered formula is. A lot of the neonatal intensive care units won't use it anymore. They won't use anything powdered because of the risk. You can't make it. Well, now they go with human milk anyway or donated milk. Yeah. I've seen um, so many people getting the little powdered thing out, scooping it up, putting it under the faucet and shaking it up and giving it to the baby. So we'll have to, once again is why we're doing these uh, episodes of What Doulas Know, is to try to educate and get the word out as to what is safe. If someone's going to formula feed, it takes more work and more planning to do it safely. There's studies on that. World Health Organization has information on that. As a lactation care provider, I'll help somebody who doesn't want to breastfeed because it's her breasts. She gets to decide how she uses them. But formula feeding is harder. Um, in one study where uh, uh, pregnant families were told everything they could be possibly told about benefits, importance of breastfeeding, risks of formula, some of them weren't going to formula feed. Afterward, they said, thank you for letting us know all the risks because now we can make a better decision. So telling everybody of why breastfeeding is important is not something that's shaming. It's real. It's reality. It is reality. It's reality. So... Thank you very much, Linda. Oh, you're very welcome. I've enjoyed this. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of What Doulas Know. You can learn more about the show and my guests at whatdoulasknow.com. Please rate and review this show. It helps get more exposure and reach additional people. Peace to all. Thanks.